from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Our text this morning comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And it reads this way, And behold, a lawyer stood up, put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he being Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, And the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Uh, Happy New Year. I hope you got some sleep last night. Uh, I did. I haven't seen the ball drop in about 10 years. It's been awesome. Um, so uh, today, this morning, we're obviously looking at Luke 10, um, but next week, uh, we're going to be beginning a new sermon series um, called Emmanuel Church, and affectionate people will be for four weeks kind of looking at our vision statement. I encourage you, if you can, be at all of those weeks. You know, I know you've walked through this before with the elders, with Andy, with Stephen, you know, fill in the blank. Um, it's the first time I've walked through it with you, and I'm excited about it, and just excited about this coming year. Um, but today, we're going to look at Luke 10, kind of get back to the basics, kind of entering into this new year of loving God and loving our neighbor. Just a good reminder uh, as we enter into 2023 of these basic things. But I do, here at the outset, I just want to ask a favor of you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always... Uh, texting you and asking you how I can pray for you, and I just want you guys to pray for me in a way. Um, Friday, uh, I won't go into too much detail, but Friday, right after lunch, I got a call from my sister-in-law that my dad had uh, taken a fall. My dad has MS. He'd taken a fall and lives by himself. Um, He's been fairly functional up until this point, Um, and he uh, took a fall on Christmas Day, and nobody found him until, yes, Friday. So five days, he was laying on the floor. in his apartment, a cleaning lady found him, who we paid to go clean his apartment, do his laundry, and rushed him to the ER. Uh, and honestly, right now, uh, my brothers and I went over there yesterday, actually really Friday night, and um, it's 50-50, you know, if he's going to make it. And so um, his name's Eddie Baker. You can pray for him. Um, it's one of those situations where I don't really know what to pray uh, simply because, I, I, you know, quality of life honestly, might not be that great um, after this ordeal. And so just pray for comfort for him. Um, 
I have a very complicated relationship with my father. Just pray for wisdom for me and for my brothers. Andy and Ben are their names. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, you sit in these moments with other people all the time. Uh, and then it's you, and you're like, man, I don't even really know what to do right now. <laughs> um, but been reminded, uh, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor, <laughs> but I've been reminded even on the drive home yesterday just of God's faithfulness. Um, got a, in the midst of all this crazy stuff going on, got a call from a dear friend and mentor of mine that he's now cancer-free, which was amazing. I mean, just kind of a reminder of God's grace, you know, in all of this, that he is still working in many ways. And he's working in my dad's life, too. So just pray for him, Eddie Baker. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens in the next 24 to 48 hours. So, um, yeah, just pray for that. Um, and I want to pray for us together now. Um, as we begin to unpack this text. Father, I do thank you for your mercy and your faithfulness um, that are new every morning, that even though seasons in our lives may change and situations may change and circumstances may change, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And uh, you know what it's like, Father, to lose somebody you love. And I pray, Father, for my dad now, that even as he is confused as to what's going on, that you just comfort him by the Spirit. I pray for us as his sons, that you just give us great wisdom in what to do. And um, I pray now, Lord, that you speak to all of us in this room about what it means to have undivided loves, undivided love for you that then spills over and it's an undivided love for our neighbors. So I pray that now. I pray, Lord, that you open our eyes to believe and see the truth of the gospel. May we be encouraged, encouraged as we enter into this new year and what it may hold. But may we always remember your grace, your mercy, and your faithfulness. And may we go and do likewise. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to uh, approach you and ask you just this question, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? Um, how do you think you'd answer that question? What would you say? You know, in a, a culture where so much of Christianity is associated with prosperity and progress, and recently a certain political party with rule following, with mantras like, you know, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do. That was a Mississippi mantra. Um, is that really what Christ has called us to? You know, when someone comes to faith in Jesus for the first time, is that really what we're asking new believers to adhere to in this new life of following Christ? Is that it? You know, our passage for this morning sits right in the middle of a portion of Luke that seeks to answer these questions. You know, if we were doing a comprehensive study of Luke from chapter 9, verse 51, up until chapter 11, verse 13, Luke is unpacking for us the basics of Christian discipleship. And in a world with muddy messages about what it means to follow Jesus and what that looks like, Luke shows us that it costs us way more than we could ever imagine, yet it promises way more than we could ever dream. And I propose to you that our passage for this morning, probably a familiar passage to many of us, teaches us, I propose to you that it teaches us that an undivided love for God generates an unconditional love for our neighbor. That an undivided love for God generates in us an unconditional love for our neighbor. It's the parallel of the Good Samaritan, where this lawyer comes to Jesus, this lawyer who was an expert in the law of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible that we have here. 
And he comes with a question. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. It's a good question. It's a question men and women have been asking since the beginning of time. What must I do to live forever? How can I avoid death? And Jesus responds with two different questions. Look at verse 26. He says, what is written in the law? So the first question is literally a comprehensive question. What does it say? What does the law say? It's a question about facts, subjective information. And then the second question, how do you read it, is a question of interpretation. So you have a question about facts, then you have a question about interpretation. Not just what does it say, but what does it mean? How do you apply it? It's possible to read something in the Scriptures, believe it with our minds, have the facts about that text of Scripture, yet not reflect that belief with our lives, right? We all know that to be true. You know, Lord, I've prayed this many times, maybe you have too. Lord, I believe with my mind, help me believe with my heart, right? And Jesus is showing this lawyer and us by proxy here in the 21st century that it's possible to believe something intellectually, but not believe something in your heart. You know, when I was a kid, my grandmother, I've talked about her before, she was a big worrier. I love her. Love, she's passed away now, but anytime we would be preparing to go do something uh, fun as children, like play on the playground or go feed the ducks or something at the pond, she always had a story that she'd recently heard or read in a newspaper or seen on the news of some kind of tragic ending tied to whatever it is we're about to go do. Um, and I'll get, let me give you an example real quick. Uh, my grandparents live in Cleveland, Georgia. Uh, my grandfather still lives there. As I said, my grandmother's passed away. Um, Cleveland's grown pretty significantly since I was a kid. I don't know if you're familiar with the North Georgia terrain, but, but growing up uh, in Cleveland, there wasn't really much to do apart from my grandfather owned a service station, a BP service station, so we go and get candy and slushies free from the service station, and we go to this place called Babyland, which is where Cabbage Patch Kids were created. It's really weird, all right? Um, but go check it out. Yeah, you got to see it, all right? But that's what we do, and there was not much, many places to eat, but one of the places we'd always go is McDonald's. Go to McDonald's. It's a big deal when you're in Cleveland, Georgia. And I remember getting ready for one of these trips to McDonald's and thinking about playing in, you know, the play place. I don't know what it was called then. They haven't been around since COVID. But they were around at one time, and they had the huge ball pits. We all know the ball pits. I mean, slides, nooks, crannies, ball pits. I mean, it's, it's the kid's dream going to this play place, McDonald's. Get a Happy Meal. My grandmother, uh, God rest her soul, she proceeds to share with me and my brothers, this is a true story, on the way to the ball pit, the play place, that she recently read a news story about a girl who got in a ball pit and was bitten by a snake, all right? So snake hiding in the ball pit, again, it's a true story. I'm not making this up. This isn't like pastor embellishment. This is a true story. Ball pit, girl gets in, snake hiding in the ball pit, bites this girl, all right? And so I'm sitting there as a kid, and I'm thinking, there's no chance I'm getting in that dang ball pit now. Like, play place is over. Uh, let's just get our happy meals and go home. We're not staying to play. I mean, I don't know what she possessed her in her mind to tell a kid that before we get in, but, but I believed it. I believed that story to be true. I have no reason to believe it's not true. I still, to this day, am scared of ball pits. Um, but my belief, my knowledge of the facts led to an action, right? It led to me not getting in the ball pit. Believed there was danger. My intellectual belief led me to act. That's what faith is. Intellectual belief that leads to action. Not just belief held here, but it leads to change. The lawyer is about to see here, this parable of the Good Samaritan, 
that his belief is not as deep as he thinks. So Jesus asks these two questions in verse 26, and the lawyer responds. He actually answers correctly. Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, these two texts in the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus calls it the greatest commandment in the law. And he says, that, love the Lord your God, and Jesus commends him, and then love your neighbor as yourself. In other Gospels, he says, on these two commandments rest all the law and the prophets. So all the, gospel, all the, all the teaching of the Old Testament can be wrapped up into these two things, loving God and loving your neighbor. And Jesus says, the lawyer answers that way. Jesus says, yeah, that's correct. You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So let's pause for a second and think about this interchange. This lawyer's an expert, right? An expert in the law. He knows Deuteronomy 6. He knows Leviticus 19. He knows the law. He answers correctly. Love the Lord your God with everything you are, your entire being, everything that makes up you, and love your neighbors yourself. Love your neighbor in the same way that you yourself desire to be loved and treated and cared for. Those are right answers. Jesus says, yes, I affirm that. That's what the law says. If you do it, you'll live. But there's, I believe, some irony here in this text. Because with Jesus' commendation of what the lawyer said, right behind that is condemnation for the lawyer and for us. Because how can we possibly do that? I mean, how can we, at every moment of every day, love the Lord with everything we are perfectly and love our neighbors as ourselves? The lawyer's beginning to realize, I believe, the futility of his efforts to achieve this love that the law demands. And so, in seeking to soften the command, he asked another question. And who is my neighbor? I think the lawyer here is thinking, how can I limit the scope of neighbor in order to have a better shot at perfectly loving my neighbor? I mean, think about that for us. You know, when we open up the scriptures and we see what God requires of us in the law, in his word, it typically leads initially to two conclusions. First conclusion we probably experience is despair. Like, we see how far we fall short of what God commands, and we despair. You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 48, that God requires perfection. Not simply perfection in action, but perfection in motive. Our hearts, why we do what we do, needs to be holy and righteous all the time. And if we're being honest with ourselves and we look at our actions against the bar of God's standard, it could drive us to despair because we can't do it. We can't do it. So this lawyer seeks to bring the bar lower. And we often try to change the standard as well. He tries to soften the law's demands, and he does that by asking his question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? This leads to a second conclusion that sometimes we draw when we see God's law. Not only could the perfect law of God bring about despair because we cannot fulfill it, but second, when we, we seek to cut corners and make it easier for us, it leads us to reductionism. Taking God's law and ignoring or taking out or cutting out those places we don't like that expose us in our shortcomings. You know, the Jews in Jesus' day, they had a very narrow and technical definition of neighbor. You know, their definition purposely sought exclusion. Samaritans, we're going to see in a second, but also Gentiles as a whole. 
What the lawyer is seeking to do is set parameters around those neighbors to be loved. So the very question itself, and who is my neighbor, implies that there's a category that exists called non-neighbors, right? Legalistic Christianity seeks to reduce down the radical calls of Christ into easy-to-swallow sugar tablets. I heard a pastor say one time, we've taken the lifeblood out of Christianity and we put Kool-Aid in its place so that it tastes better to the crowds and the consequences are catastrophic. Jesus rejects our attempts to shrink the gospel, the scope of neighborly responsibility. It is a false version of Christianity. And he shows us this through a parable, a story. So in response to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, Jesus tells a story. Look at verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was nicknamed the Bloody Way or the Red Way. It was about 3,300 feet down over the course of 17 miles. It was known for its rocky terrain, which made it easy for robbers and thieves and murderers to hide in ambush of people traveling on this road. It was known for those things on a regular basis. And sure enough, in this parable, this man's assaulted by a group of robbers. And everything he has is taken. And he's bleeding out on the side of the road, facing inevitable death. He's half dead unless somebody comes along and intervenes. And sure enough, somebody comes by. Look at verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So these two leaders in the Jewish worshiping community, they come to this place and they see this man and they pass by on the other side. They're coming from Jerusalem too, which could imply that they had literally just left leading in worship, offering sacrifices in worship and praise to God. And I'm sure they could have given you a litany of valid reasons for not stopping. I mean, I could get beat up and left for dead myself. It's not safe to stop. I mean, I'm not even sure he's still alive, so why even stop to begin with? I could defile myself ceremonially by touching a dead body. I hear footsteps behind me. That person will be sure to stop. Now, it's really too late to do any good for him anyway. I'm sure this guy really had it coming to him. I mean, nobody just beats up anybody for the sake of beating people up. What if people see me next to him and think I was the one who robbed him and beat him? You know, if I just pray for him and drop off a track like next to his body, he'll pick it up and read it. And if he recovers, like I'm caring about his spiritual well-being. Many excuses, many excuses these guys could have given. But the fact remains there's a man in need and dying. And the priest and the Levite, those who should know better, two men who should be the leaders in the nation of Israel, they never stop to help. They don't stop. You know, when I read and studied this, uh, I couldn't help but be convicted myself. I mean, how many times have I bypassed somebody in need because it inconvenienced me to stop? These two men in the story, they're leaders in the worshiping community. I mean, they had literally probably just left worshiping in the temple, but it had no effect upon them. No effect. They proclaimed the word of God, they made sacrifices and recited psalms and prayed prayers, but their failure to act laid bare the true nature of their hearts. 
We'll come back to that here in just a second. But let's continue on in our story. So at this point, Jesus has exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders that he brings out so many times in his parables. I feel like that's sometimes the purpose of parables. And the listeners of the parable possibly thought this was another story about the failure of Israel's leadership. Jesus told a lot of those. So the next person they're expecting is probably just a normal Jewish man. Like a, it's a story from the greater to the lesser. So the next guy coming is just probably going to be a normal Jewish man and non-clergy member of the community, and he's going to do what's right. He's going to do what these guys should have done. But Jesus, like any good storyteller, presents a, a pretty incredible twist here. Verse 33. But a Samaritan. We'll stop there for just a moment. In the Greek, the emphasis in the sentence lays in this word, Samaritan. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. John 8, 48, the Pharisees equate Samaritans with the devil. They were considered half-breeds, a lower class, lesser than. Jews, when traveling, they would, pass, they would have to pass through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. They would go around Samaria. They wouldn't even go through Samaria, travel around Samaria. They considered Samaritans unclean. Not fit for the hospitality and the love and the care of their people. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. It's a Samaritan, not the priest or the Levite, who's actually the one who keeps the law. The Samaritan showed compassion. Verse 34. And went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. In verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Through the positive acts of this Samaritan, Jesus is exposing the religious. He rips off the fig leaves of external religion and leaves our hearts naked before him. Jesus lays this lawyer and us bare. Shows us that if if we have divided loves, we cannot love our neighbor as ourselves. That our affections for Christ are often split between him and other idols in our lives. And this leads to a lack of love for those people around us. And there are three ways, three ways this parable leaves us uncovered before the Lord. First, this parable exposes our hypocrisy. Exposes our hypocrisy. How many of us come into this room on a weekly basis or spend time in a GC on a regular basis or spend time in a DNA group on a regular basis, getting accountability and pouring over the word and we store up and we store up and we store up knowledge for ourselves and our minds and yet our hearts are cold and unfazed towards the broken and the hurting. How many of us on a weekly basis, to quote Matthew 23, bring our tithes to the church, yet we neglect the weightier matters of the law, those matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness? How many of us take heed of the words of Hosea, where God says through him, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? Charles Spurgeon said this, 
said, Dear people, you may spend Sabbath after Sabbath in the worship of God, or what you think to be so. You may behold Christ Jesus set forth visibly crucified among you, and themes which ought to turn a heart of stone to flesh may pass before your minds, and nevertheless you may return into the world to be as miserly as ever and to have as little feeling towards your fellow man as before. Every single one of us, myself included, every single one of us, like the lawyer, priest, and Levite, we are guilty. Guilty. We have all played the part of religious fraud at different times in our lives. Because that which we say we believe leads us to little action when it comes to people in need. The Samaritan first, again, exposes our hypocrisy. Second, this parable exposes our prejudice. You know, there is ethnic tension all throughout this parable, all throughout it. You know, I mentioned already the deep animosity Jews and Samaritans had towards one another. You know, racial and ethnic tension has plagued the church of God since its inception 2,000 years ago. Much of the New Testament is written to try to teach Jews and Gentiles how to fellowship together as a new people. Still something, if we're being honest, I don't know why we wouldn't be, that we battle here on a regular basis. I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said the most segregated day during the week is a Sunday morning. Right? I believe that's still to be true. But by bringing a Samaritan into the story, Jesus exposes the Jewish people and their bigotry and their hatred here. And the question that generates is, if my perceived enemy comes to my aid, how much more am I, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, called to help those different than me in their need? You know, I, my previous church, Johnson Ferry, we were one of the leading churches in resettling Syrian refugee families that came when the Syrian crisis happened back in the mid-2014, 2015, maybe a little earlier than that. And it exposed many of us, right, in, in good ways and in bad ways. You know, obviously many people during that time believed one single narrative about Syrians, and it's that they're all terrorists, right? So we got to protect ourselves, insulate ourselves. We can't let them, X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank. But one of the places they resettled many of their Syrian refugee families was Atlanta, particularly a place called Clarkston, which is the most diverse square mile in the country. And our church, led by our pastor Bryant, was a leading voice in resettling those families. Um, 60 Minutes did a whole story on it. It was pretty amazing. It was pretty awesome. And Bryant, uh, love that guy. If he were here, it would not be about him at all. And I'm not going to make it about him. But he did a great job leading that charge for our church. But because we chose not to buy into the narrative regarding a particular people group. Many in our church showed neighborly compassion towards people different than us and love, regardless of where they came from, and people were drawn to the gospel. People in our community came to Johnson Ferry going, what in the world's going on with you? Alliances were formed with people we didn't think we'd have alliances with and resettling these Syrian refugee families. is a beautiful, beautiful thing. The gospel brought these people together. And God has been extremely gracious to us as a country, right? The United States of America. Praise the Lord. I mean, he's been so gracious to us. And we should always be thankful to him for that. 
But when churches like Johnson Ferry and other churches as well that were instrumental in that particular situation, when they opened their hearts, opened their arms to embrace people ethnically different than themselves, that makes Christ look beautiful. It makes the gospel look attractive. It makes people want that. And in what Christ has called us to as his followers is no longer this mindset of America first, but it's Christ's kingdom first. And this parable showing us that, that the gospel tears down any dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And it is one people now in Christ Jesus through faith in him. That's what the gospel does. So for us, this this parable just shows us how much of a long way we still have to go, right, in this. That if the kingdom of God is made up of all different races and ethnicities and nations, the question for us is, do our lives reflect the kingdom? Not just our church, but our lives. Do they reflect the kingdom? Do you have close friends in your life that look different than you? They come from different socioeconomic backgrounds than you? Or does your life look pretty homogenous? Does my life look pretty homogenous? The best way to break down prejudice and stereotypes in our hearts about other people is to take time to know and understand men and women that are different than us. So, this parable exposes our prejudice. And then third, this parable exposes our selfishness. I love parables and I hate parables all at the same time simply because they lay us just bare before the Lord, right? It's the purpose of the parable. Samaritan helps this man at great cost to himself. Now, by stopping, this Samaritan put his own life in danger. This is the red, bloody way, right? Samaritan stops taking the risk of being beaten and robbed himself. He binds up this man's wounds, probably by ripping off his own garments and tying them around this man to stop the bleeding. He pours on oil and wine for disinfecting the, uh, and cleaning this man's wounds. He was emptying these two items that cost much money. By offering his own animal, this Samaritan is walking the remaining miles to an end, probably at great toll to his body. By offering to pay whatever this man's expenses are to get well, he sets no limits on what this man's recovery may cost him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bids him to come and die. Christianity is a daily laying down of our own preferences, our own desires, our own lives for the sake of others and God's glory. Before we follow Jesus, we're asked to count the cost, and the cost is everything. Everything. Unconditionally loving our neighbor is just that. It's it's unconditional. If it costs us everything, it costs us everything. That's the cost. That's what we signed up for when God saved us. When we begin to set parameters and qualifications around our love, we're no longer loving our neighbors ourselves. Christianity is a call to lay down. And like this Samaritan, the Christian life is not marked by selfishness, but by selfless compassion. Selfless compassion. Not only was he showing compassion to the poor, 
by providing for this man in ways that he could not provide for himself. But the Samaritan also shows us compassion by binding up the broken. Takes this man and he literally binds him up. The call of Christ is to lay down ourselves, take up our crosses, follow him. To be like this Samaritan and look to others' concerns above our own. Now, we may be sitting here, and even now, you're still thinking, if this is what's required of me, there's no way I can have undivided love for God and unconditional love for my neighbor. And, and I would say, yeah, you're right. That's the point. That's the point of it. You can't. But there has been someone who possessed both of these things. And the ultimate good Samaritan is Christ Jesus himself. It's Jesus. Jesus saw us laying not half dead, but fully dead in our sin. And he stopped and he knelt down beside us to bind up our wounds. He poured the balm of his grace and mercy onto us, removing the sting and power of sin from our hearts. He gives our restless souls rest and he looks at his people, these wounded, broken, now bound up people, and he says, I've paid it all. I've given it all that you may be healed. There's no price that I was not willing to pay. Jesus went to the cross. He possessed undivided love for God and unconditional love for us, his neighbors. His love was not hypocritical, for he did exactly as the Lord directed him. His love was not prejudiced, for in giving up his life, he promised he would save people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. His love was not selfish, for he poured out everything that he had, even his very life, so that we may experience new life. Because of Christ, we have hope through faith in him that he is making us new, that he's binding us up. We have hope that through faith, he is crafting in us, through his spirit, a love for God and an unconditional love for our neighbor. So what is our response this morning? Well, I think it's really two things. One is repentance. Repentance. I feel like that should be our response every week. <laughs> that should be our response every day. Repentance for those many places we fail here. I know I do. We need to repent of past mistakes. We haven't loved the Lord or our neighbor well. And ask the Spirit to change our hearts, make us more like Christ this morning, and we, second, we respond with gratitude. All of us were hopeless, dead in our sin. Christ stopped. He stopped. And he poured out everything he had to make us whole again. Repentance and gratitude. May that mark our 2023. Let's pray together.